This is Sabrina Monarch, and this is a show about spiritual lifestyle and personal evolution. I'm an evolutionary astrologer, a clairvoyant, and a thought leader, and I started this podcast to have eclectic and impactful conversations about astrology, as well as all things spiritual and personal development. Everyone, I'm back with two chapters of Hungry Ghosts of Paradise. So let's see what I want to tell you before we dive in. One is that starting after chapter 18... I kind of visualized a part two of this novel, right? Like we had the part one leading up to the crash. And then after that, we're really looking at part two. And it's a different type of um, process even for me to write. Something that is occurring now in part two um, is that some characters who show up, I am not disguising their identities um, because they're people that are kind of like a work cited of my life, people that influenced me, teachers, loved ones, friends, guides in some way. And so I wanted to keep their identities in the story. And also because I'm still writing from memory and I don't have like transcripts of conversations, I'm paraphrasing and I'm doing my best to convey what I remember or convey a feeling. And so these cannot be direct quotes. It's just me um, creating creative fiction out of real events. Um, so that's what I wanted to say, disclaimer wise. And every chapter that I write is healing and confronting. And one of the things that confronted me in this chapter was going back into a time in my life where I was coming into an awareness that I had of like my psychic and spiritual gifts. And I was still working out a lot of stuff in my personality and the places that I got to of like trying to make things that I wanted to happen, happen. And how I had to learn over the years to really let that go and not try to use my spiritual gifts <laughs> in an egoic way. Right. And so this isn't just me that goes through this. It is, um, you know, when we tap into Kundalini, when we tap into our power, when we tap into um, the gifts of our soul, when we try to use that for the smaller means of the ego or personality, stuff can get funky, right? So in this, um, in chapter 22, that comes up as I was kind of recollecting how I used to, um, you know, really want to get my my novel, The Garden of Sleeping Hammers, published and how, you know, I was doing the things on the earth plane I was sending out the book to agents but then I was also like closing my eyes and like imagining it happening and and all of that which is really what I was learning from manifestation teachings and yeah it was just kind of interesting to go back and to feel into how I used to be in that place of gripping so hard onto the things that I wanted and the suffering really that comes from that and how yeah, over the years, like really learning to let things go and find a deeper flow in reality where my own will and the universal will align more. And it doesn't feel like I'm 
working against the grain. So that is what I wanted to share before we get into this. Um, the part of the story that we're in is, you know, character myself is still down hard. Um, we'll have more action and more um, adventures coming up, but this is really a time of grappling um, and we're still here. So if you haven't tuned into this story yet, if you are just tuning in for the first time, go back to chapter one. Don't start in the middle. Um, this story is explicit. Um, not this chapter necessarily. Actually, it is. Yeah, this story is explicit. It's for adults. Please listen responsibly. And if you have been tuning in and at any point you have reflections that you want to share with me, I'm super open to hearing um, your experience of the book. If you want to DM me or email me, um, some of you text me, you know, however you want to um, contact me. And yeah, just be mindful too that of the Instagram impersonator scams and that my only Instagram is Sabrina Monarch. No extra letters or punctuation or misspelling. So just be clear it's me and not one of the impersonators. Um, there's also the magic of the spheres account, but I don't really use that super much. Okay, I will get into these two chapters now. I'll leave you to it. And I love you. Thanks for listening. Chapter 21. I walk in late to Rick Tarna's keynote speech at Norwalk 2016. I arrive as he is speaking of the Venus-Saturn combination, which Aiden has natally within his Libra stellium. Rick is speaking of how these individuals can be closed off to love, for no particular reason at times. I remember Aiden in one of our motel rooms, retreated into himself on the bed, telling me he wasn't open or available in that moment. This happened a few times and it always passed, but then it happened in a real, final way. Saturn's scythe. Rick also speaks of how astrology can enrich other disciplines and that other disciplines enrich astrology, that we see this in the combination of psychology and astrology, but the possibilities are endless. Literature, myth and astrology, history and astrology, medical science and astrology, and so on. He encourages higher education. The reading with Mark Jones. As I go up the elevator to Mark's conference suite where he sees reading clients, I feel hyper aware of the elevator buttons, the triangular designs on the carpet, the way the hallways pass through my vision like ribbons and reverse to my walking. How can I help? Mark asks. The blinds are drawn over the sweet windows for privacy, the room illuminated by lamp. Mark's serious aura lends a shamanic feel to the space, a promise of gravity. I don't think I'll be able to tell you the story without crying, I say, already bursting. I catch him up as best as I can through speech debilitating tears, a chaotic sea of is a body worker, looks like a Greek god. Amazing, revelatory sex. Everything only felt amazing. I wished for him and my crown chakra opened and he appeared. 
my dad died. My dad died. Aiden was at the funeral. We have the same dream sometimes, Aiden and I. We meet up astrally. We went on this road trip. Aiden gets in a paragliding crash, damages his brain, sleeps with his ex and breaks up with me, even though we were about to move in together. At each point, Mark nods, yes. And at the end of my disjointed tale, he says, Icarus flies too close to the sun, ruins the vibe. But it's more than that, I plead. He was really magical and we had this connection and he was really good at sex. It was unlike anything I'd ever known. I offer up other pleadings for Mark to really understand what I've lost that I list off that don't seem to impress him. But I feel him attuning, tracking, very seriously. It's in the middle of my speaking and unraveling in a way that I don't remember that I say, my family can't see me, offhandedly, as in, Aiden could see me, but my family can't. And Mark interrupts me here. What do you mean your family can't see you? I explained that I had a spiritual awakening when I was 21, that my family medicalized, that I was financially dependent, so I just lied and faked my way out, but it took me six months, that I'm not bipolar, that I'm actually magical, and I see little lights that look like stars that validate resonance and that guide me. Mark shakes his head, saying something about overdiagnosis and overprescription, but I digress, he says, and comes back. And he helps me see, though I forget the words, that the disconnection I feel from my family of origin makes me that much more vulnerable to heartbreak. It's not just Aiden. It's something underneath it that it touched. Also, my dad just died only months ago, and that's major. But, I grapple. I'll never be happy again. I'll never have a lover like Aiden or as good as Aiden. Mark says, as you mature psychologically, you'll attract a more psychologically mature partner. When he says this, I can in some sense see a broken mirror that despite how smart and mature I think I am, maybe I am psychologically immature. And if that's the case, it means my situation could improve. And more importantly, when he speaks these words, as you mature psychologically, you'll attract a more psychologically mature partner. I see a basketball-sized orb of blue light, not a tiny star, appear on the wall behind Mark and hover there, long enough for me to gasp and exclaim, there's a ball of light here right now. What you're saying is true. Mark neither glorifies or denies this moment, but he seems to believe that I see the lights. Mark, knowing that I'm a counseling astrologer, albeit a budding one, explains that people will resonate with me, my counseling, my work, because what I've overcome and integrated, that I won't even necessarily have to speak directly about it for it to translate through my presence. It's not that I have to believe that my suffering is meaningful because it's heroic, and that I am championing something for the people that I will meet throughout my life. It's that I need to believe that my suffering will end, that life will be beautiful again, that life will redeem itself, that I will remember in my being what it's like to be in love. And because a blue ball of light hovered when he said, as you mature psychologically, you'll attract a more psychologically mature partner, I believe it. 
It hasn't landed at every level, but I believe it, like faith. You've been through a lot, Mark says. I do longer-term therapy if that's something you can or want to do. I accept this suggestion wholeheartedly. My family once paid for psychological treatment I explicitly didn't even want. I know they believe in therapy and will help me out for this therapy I cannot yet afford with one of the most renowned professionals in the field, an astrologer-psychotherapist, someone I'd actually trust and want to talk to about the very disillusioning, transpersonal things I'm dealing with. My stay in karma prison, my stay in hell, just got an amenity that I will gladly accept. I listened to the recording of the reading on the drive home, a file that I've since lost. I come home to the dark forest and my A-frame townhome tucked inside of it. For a while, I sit in my car underneath the parking overhang. I sit there, feeling gutted, feeling the gravity of my emptiness, and yet the depth of my entanglement. Astrologers across the globe on Facebook who have never met in person, from South America, Australia, and the southern U.S., a small secret group on Facebook, have become a lifeline. I write to them frantically when my body is racked with a kind of permeating spiritual pain I can't hold myself. I tell them the situation, post my natal chart, Aiden's natal chart. Among many things, they have told me I'm learning emotional self-reliance, moon and Taurus opposite Pluto and Scorpio. And I hate this. For some years, I try to trick karma try to feign emotional self-reliance performatively because it's like sexy and will in turn attract the man who makes emotional self-reliance a moot point. I try to even understand what emotional self-reliance is since no one can survive on their own. And I try to at least superficially look like I'm doing it. Why am I supposed to learn to take care of myself if all I want is to be taken care of, loved, adored, to belong, to be held in the arms of a man who is stronger and more powerful than me, but chooses to protect me, who I can become my best self with and in return give him my undying adoration. When I sit in the car, some layer of grief settles, like a boxing match has ended and the lights have turned off in an empty stadium, a sheet of snow, or ice perhaps a quiet inside of me that knows that I'm in rehab and I can't survive. I can't afford to not figure this thread out, this thread of my most desperate hunger and the hungry ghost I keep trying to feed and the way my lover, who stands in the same place as the ghost, slips away from me like an apparition, too. Chapter 22. One morning, I feel it's been too long since I've heard back from the agent who I sent a few chapters to, the agent Aiden befriended for me, Adam. I have pressed like a laser from my third eye, forceful visions of my dreams coming true. Sometimes I've asked the angels in case they could grant it on my behalf. I have a strange relationship with the angels at this time, like a loophole. I ask them to do things for me, sometimes in the place of me being direct. 
where I ask them to influence people instead of leaving people to their own free will, while I contort around the existential crisis of if it's worth it to get what I want if I made it happen and it wasn't freely given, and the exhausting upkeep of trying to be some weird, crazed puppeteer working with divine beings that don't even play that way, serving below their station. So when I petition the angels, it at times makes my desire feel safe. I think, instead of it being invasive or forceful, I can just leave it up to the angels to enable or block my desire, like a let go and let God situation. Until I get really frustrated and I'm really reaching out to try to shake the angels, beg the angels, come on, angels, shaking dice at a casino. The angels have not corrected me for my ridiculous relationship with them. It's like they're letting me figure it out. Other times, my strategy has been to believe my book will be published, that Adam is the one, my agent, just in case it is my conviction that will influence the course of events. I say affirmations, like how much Adam loves my book, and I see lights. Whether the lights are validation of the truth or just the truth of my process, I don't know. This morning, I have plans to go see The Jungle Book in theaters later by myself, because somehow it had come up in passing as something random to do with Aiden, and it's something I can do alone now. I have finished getting ready before the mirror, and I come back to the floor below the towel rack, sitting against the wall. I've turned off the lights so I can see my lights brighter, close my eyes and resort to energetically penetrating Adam's space. A last resort. I've had enough waiting and I want answers today. I will hear back from Adam today, I command. A chandelier of lights. A few hours later, Adam writes me. My heart lights up immediately with anticipation. I open his message. Hi, Sabrina. Thanks again for chatting with me at AWP. It was great meeting you and Aiden. I've given this a look, and I agree that there are many fascinating elements in play here. However, I found the prose a bit verbose in places, and it was hard for me to ultimately connect with the characters. In revision, I'd focus on what these characters need and the tactics by which they endeavor to get them. That's how you create tension and drama and plot all of which seem a bit obscured in this draft. Thanks again for your patience, and I wish you all the best. I hear a little cartoon bomb-dropping sound effect amidst an otherwise quiet, numb, inner landscape. I go to see the movie and sit in the car for a long time afterward, looking at myself in the mirror until I call my grandpa and confess to him that I'm miserable. You're miserable, he asks. What's going on? On top of the heartbreak, Aiden's accident, Dad's death, an agent has said no to my book. Ah, okay, Sabrina, he says, compassionately and without much reaction, like there's nothing additionally wrong with me being miserable. I forget why I went, but I go to an outdoor show, metal, which I don't normally care for. The night turns the grass to a deep shade of emerald. I make a friend around a fire. I'm just gabbing absently, but she seems captivated, and we connect. 
maybe over red matte lipstick we got from the Mac store. And I'm actually having fun to my surprise. The music reaches me as Dionysian, cathartic. There is actually more singing than screaming. And I can feel the lamplight of the moon bringing out the lunacy in people. These people maybe have day jobs. These people may be performing during the day. But in the night, they are other creatures entirely. It's a performance we are watching, but this is closer to the truth than the daytime. I drink. I'm still drunk when I'm dropped off at home. Before I fall asleep, I decide enthusiastically that alcohol is the answer to my pain, that at this point in my life I will commit myself to functional alcoholism because I deserve it, because my body doesn't get addicted to substances and it doesn't run in my family and I can be an alcoholic for a few months for fun. I love how numbed my pain feels. I love how replaced it is with the dose of ecstasy I'm capable of experiencing now. I wake up early to construction noises and a text from my landlord informing me that this construction will be a daily morning occurrence for the next month. I think of the Saturn-Neptune square characterizing this year, 2016, which has been brutal for me, bringing finality to the slow death of my fading father, materializing the dream of Aiden and letting it crash and disintegrate. And now, the one night I decide to turn to alcohol to bury myself in Neptune, Saturn answers with early morning hammers and drills, and this is enough to quell my fantasy. Ah, father, send the bottle back to the sea. Let this old man sleep. Laying in bed, I'm feeling sorry for myself and how ruined my life feels and how it's Aiden's fault, how profoundly he's destroyed me, shown me paradise and taken it away, shown me a paradise I'll never have access to again, and how I'll never have it again, that I'm ruined. He's in some content place with himself, his dogs, maybe cat. Fucking cat. And I feel he needs to suffer, beyond the head injury. I imagine various scenarios, finally arriving at an image of him having all of his fingers cut off. An image which once, related to him doing woodworking, made me cringe. A passing fear that he might hurt himself in the shop. I take the image back, but I make it worse, systemize it to each digit. This transports me, with my eyes closed, into a series of yellow rings of light, which come over me like a ribbed tunnel. Solar plexus, I wonder. Why does my spiritual navigation system validate this? The more I meditate on the image of Aiden losing his fingers, the brighter and more intense the yellow tunnel becomes. I suppose it's important for me, so I let myself have this violent fantasy. Until I'm in tears, thinking, but I thought I truly loved Aiden. Did I just love him for what he was for me? Was it even love if I want all of his fingers chopped off? Not that I really want that, but I was willing to think about it intentionally. I am forcefully granted a vision of a generator, shaped like a fountain. Source, God, is at the top, giving energy to all beings. Beings can also form channels of energy with each other, though they are meant to stay connected to God also. Sometimes beings get so lost and seduced in the allure of each other 
so much so that they forget the source. The individual beings then feed from each other until they run dry, brittle, and crack off from the main source generator, fall to the ground as ashes. In a dream, I see Kat's exalted form. She is sitting on a bed. I view her from slightly below. She is wearing red. Her hair is black. She has it styled in a top knot with a chopstick sticking through the bun. Her world is 90s-esque, like a woman who was a teenager and not a child like I was in the 90s, which, given our age difference, tracks. Cassette player, portable radio, metallics. A nebulous portal, who knows what exists beyond this room where we are together. As she speaks, I cannot decipher any words, as though the room is muted, muffled, underwater. And though I cannot hear exact words, I am enraptured. Here, I remember we are soul friends across space and time. In my waking life, it works on me like a stirring transmission. Intellectually, I understand that some enemies in this life, maybe all of them if we boil it down deep enough, are my friends at a soul level. I do not know what Kat and I have worked out or what we have worked out with Aiden together before we incarnated, but something softens. 